Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Ali Milani, and this is Politics Uncensored. We are continuing to look back at some of our favorite bits from Fubar Radio over the last year. We've had some amazing interviews, interesting guests, some some combative, some not so combative. And I hope you enjoy looking back with me at some of my favorite interviews from 2023. And I'm going to start this week by looking back at one we did with Dawn Butler, Labour MP for Brent Central. We spoke ahead of her publication of her book, A Purposeful, a Purposeful Life, uh, which is out now. Uh, and we covered a variety of topics, including her early days in Westminster, racism and politics, and whether she would consider running for mayor of London one day. Do give a listen some really, really interesting and shocking stories uh, from one of the leading lights in the Labour Party, Dawn Butler. Okay, Dawn, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm really, really delighted um, to have you. One of the... Uh, you know, when we started the show and we we conceptualized the show, one of the things I was really keen to do was to platform and bring on voices um, who were not the typical voices in the political space. I um, When I got involved in politics, uh, one of the first things I noticed was people from backgrounds like mine, people from experiences and lives like mine, I very rarely interacted with. And I can only imagine how much that was your experience. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, my first question, you know, what I'd really like to delve into to start off with is really your experience getting elected um, as an MP. I believe you were the third black woman uh, to be elected into parliament, which is an incredible, huge achievement. But it, I also imagine it's difficult, overwhelming. And so I want you, if you could just tell us a little bit about those early days, that first day in parliament, what it felt like to kind of walk into this giant institution not just a building but all these traditions and um this weight of history uh and how clearly it was not built for someone like you but you had smashed through the barrier and what that felt like so um ali you're right um very much my experience uh with politics the same as yours in terms of your thinking oh my goodness, there's nobody like me in this place or even involved in politics. And when you begin to get involved in politics, a little bit of you, because people are so suspicious of you as well, and a little bit of you thinks, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? But um, there's always something, well, for me, it's like, well, I wanted to make a change and I felt that I could still hold on to me like I don't do things if I feel I'm gonna lose a bit of me in the process and it's interesting because I'm um I've written a book called A Purposeful Life and in it you start to sort of uh, have a timeline of your life and you start categorizing what you did and how you did it and what it felt like and you know, when I was elected into Parliament, thinking about all that I had gone through, and obviously there's additional hurdles. Um, being, uh, I was young then, uh, being really quite young, being black and being female. So you kind of think to yourself, okay, I've gone through all of those hurdles. I've conquered those. I've won against the odds. And now I've made it, do you know what I mean? I'm in parliament with all of these other elected MPs and you, and you think, right, what I need to do now is get on with the job. And <clears throat> I remember, you know, going into parliament, smartly dressed, wearing heels, um, 
and then almost having the wind knocked out of me by my whole achievement of what I actually went through to get there not being recognized you know all of a sudden it was like are you sure you're an MP who have you come to work for or being in the lift and being told this lift isn't for cleaners or trying to get onto the terrace to have lunch with my team and and being physically stopped by another MP saying where do you think you're going now all of a sudden I had all of these additional considerations that I hadn't thought of and I tell you and as I say writing about it I was annoyed with myself um I was annoyed with myself because I thought why did you why did you let your guard down that much you know what I mean why didn't why did you think that everybody in that place was going to be of a similar mindset or forward thinking. Just because it's parliament, it isn't the case. And, you know, by the time I entered parliament, so that there was, um, Diane Abbott was the first, then there was Una King, 10 years later. Then and then after, 10 years after that, it was me. But when I went in, Una sadly lost. So, we were kind of a black woman down on the numbers and there was just two of us. It was, it was a lot. It was absolutely um, a lot to take and I, th I think people will be surprised what year you got elected. Mm. So, because I think when we think of the second, third black women to get elected into parliament, you would think 1980s, you know, that's or 1990s, but it was well into the 2000s. I think to uh, the, 2005. the 2005 that you got elected. So, it just sounds so alien to people like me that the the third black woman and like you said you you were the second in there because um one of your colleagues had lost 2005 was when the third black woman got elected that's that's unbelievable and you, you talked about i'm i'm pretty astounded to hear those astounded not surprised but but shocked to hear the story of you know being told this lift isn't for cleaners or i, I had one of my uh, one of my friends who i know Majid Majid, who got elected as a European Parliament member for, for the Green Party, you know, we, we've known each other socially, he had the same experience, he went to the European Parliament, and he was also, you know, told, you know, they assumed he wasn't an MEP. So um, it's, it's, it's kind of astounding, because you feel I can imagine you feel like you've done it, right? I've, I've, I've climbed the hurdle. Now, let me roll the sleeves up and get some work done for my constituents. And then you get there. And you realize just how archaic not only the building is, but some of the people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's shocking, really, because you think, right, job done. You know, I'm here. Yeah. I'm, I'm like everybody else, you know, in the chamber. Let's get at it. And then I've got all of these other things to consider. And when I became a minister, boy, did that piss off some of the Tories. Oh, yeah. I mean, they couldn't, you know, it was just... I, I remember that a few months earlier... We were having a debate in Parliament about the abolition of slavery. And then, you know, I became an MP and I was the first. Can you imagine, Ali? Like, I, I mean, I'm not going to deny it, right? I was um, 
shitting myself just a little bit. Do you know what I mean? So I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe uh, how big a moment this is to be sort of the first black woman standing at the dispatch box on behalf of, behalf of Her Majesty's government. And, and, and I remember um, Sadiq Khan actually, because uh, we came in at the same time in 2005 in parliament and he gave me a call and he said, uh, have you got your questions today? And I said, yeah. And he said, what time are you on? And I said, um, I'm walking through now. And I, and I hope you know, you know, Parliament, but I think he was in um, Normanshaw South, where you say so he ran from Normanshaw South through Portcullis House, down the escalators and into the chamber. And he did that in about two minutes. I don't know how he did it. For those <laughs> listening, that's quite, that's quite a run. So. <laughs> it's quite a run. Yeah. It's quite a run. And he was vexed with me. <laughs> and he sat there and he said, you know, I can't believe that you're going to make history and you haven't told anybody. But I was so focused on doing well. Mm -hmm. You know, I was so focused on making sure that I didn't mess up. I knew my stuff and getting through it because it, it was, I was just so nervous. And yeah, and you know, parliament is very, um, adversarial anyway do you know what I mean there's a lot of you know we're always arguing and it's very competitive and it's fine you know I, I I quite like that some of the time but some of the ways that I was questioned was deliberately to um belittle me yeah you know I I think you know what what is really interesting to me and one of my experiences was that image of you at the dispatch box as a first black woman is so inspiring to so many people because kids like me will have switched onto TV and for the first time politics had someone that looked or sounded like us um and I can't understate that because when I first wanted to get involved in politics one of the first things I remember is thinking you know when I've seen these weird parliament parliamentary events which we rarely watched by the way <laughs> um no one there kind of looked or specifically sounded like us um, and so seeing you at that dispatch box is such a huge moment for so many people. But equally, there are others who will see it as a threat to the established order. This isn't how things are supposed to be done. This isn't how things are done. And my privilege is at threat here because, you know, it's always been for people like us. And that comes with backlash, I can only imagine. Can you talk to us a little bit about the backlash that you've you've faced? Because, it'll you know... It, it comes in the form of threats, it comes in the form of abuse, but it also comes in interactions in Parliament with your fellow parliamentarians, with, with the system. So I can only imagine, you know, talk us through yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, and, and that's key, right? The more that we seek to have a more equitable society, the more those people whose privileges have elevated them into positions where some of them have no right being, they feel, oh my goodness, you're coming for my job, you're coming for my position, without actually having the consideration to think, did I earn my place here? Or, yeah. or was it handed to me? Was it given to me because I'm mates with somebody? We know yeah. that's how the old order works, right? You get it's a nod, nod, wink, wink, old boys club in you come you know and 
to help with everybody else. So I understand um, when I walk into a room, I understand that just by me being there, that I am a disruptor. Do you mean, I understand that in general, uh, the spaces that I operate in, there's not many people that look like me and sometimes I'm the only one. And I also understand that because I don't conform, you know, my hair's natural. I'm not wearing a Eurocentric wig that, you know, I was advised to wear if I was going to be taken seriously. Um, is that is that what was said to you early on? That yeah. You should change. Yeah, well, I was told um, not to be too black. Yeah. Uh, because people will see that as a threat and I would be seen to have a chip on my shoulder. And Ali, the thing is this, this wasn't said by somebody who didn't like me. This was said by somebody who was trying to do me a favour. Somebody who felt that they were trying to help me out. Do you mean? They're like, Dawn, don't deal with black issues. Don't be too black. Yeah. You know, you don't want to scare anyone. Um, you know, somebody even asked, you know, who my other half was because, you know, having, I don't talk about this often. And actually, I haven't even mentioned this uh, in my book. Um, but, you know, somebody kind of wanted to know who my partner was because, you know, if I've got a white partner, that would make me more uh, likable. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I've got... Nowhere near the same thing, and I, it's a minutiae compared to what you've experienced. But when I stood in Uxbridge, it was in the Labour Party that they said to me, "You know, you can change your name on the ballot. It doesn't have to be Ali Reza. You can, you know, you can make it Ali and sound it." And you know, the advice was coming from people who wanted me to win that maybe you should anglicize your name a little bit more. Maybe you should make it a little bit less Muslimy. And I was told very specific: stop talking about Muslim stuff. You know, steer away from that. So it's. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because but it gets it does it not get into your psyche? Because now that you have all, I mean, you've come such a long way, and you've been minister and run all sorts of elections. Now you can kind of identify that. But when you're early on, when you've just reached it, does it not get in your head? Oh, maybe I should be less. Maybe I should be. Um, So, because because it's coming from people who as you say, literally want you to win. So it's not that they don't want you to win, they want you to win. Of course, a bit of you thinks, maybe I should, you know, spell my name A-L-L-Y, you know, you know, you think, hmm. But my response um, to this person was, look, at the end of the day, I will fight for issues that I care passionately about. It was the same with young people. I did a lot of work for young people and fought around youth issues a lot. And I was advised, why am I doing that? Why am I talking about young people issues? Because young people don't vote. They're not interested in politics. And so people tried to put me off of the path and tell me to do other things instead. So they didn't want me to do black issues. They didn't want me to do youth issues. And it was the same kind of response. I said to them, if you don't engage or care about young people, they will not engage and care about you. And yeah. so it was important for me to do that. And I was going to do that, whether they liked it or not, because it was something that I believed in. And it's something that gives me energy. When I do things 
that I am truly passionate about, it gives me energy to continue. If I do something that I'm just doing because somebody else told me to, it, it, I won't have that enthusiasm. And politics is hard. Yeah. You need to get energy from somewhere. And I don't drink coffee. Yeah. So I need to get my energy from somewhere. Yeah. And it was the but same it's also, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? That's don't right. talk about young issues. Young people don't engage. And then they tell you not to talk about young issues because young people aren't engaged. But it just is a cycle that keeps going around. That's right. And now and now people in general do sort of talk about young people. And I think, see, I told you. But um, and on black issues, I, you know, I said, look, at the end of the day, when I wake up in the morning, I'm black. All day I'm black. And when I go to bed, I'm black. And even if you want me to not be too black, I am reminded of my blackness when I walk into that room. Yeah. When somebody ignores the fact that I'm an MP, when somebody thinks that I'm a cleaner, nothing wrong with cleaners, rather than an MP. I am reminded, this place, Parliament reminds me at every possible opportunity that it can that I am black so so for me even if I took that advice can you imagine the psychological strain that it would take on me if I'm pretending not to mention that I'm black and then somebody else mentions that I'm black yeah it would be too much yeah and so now if I, if we could talk a little bit about a couple of issues that I that I know that you've spoken about that are close to me and that are topical. Um, the first is around policing. Obviously, um, the issue of police, minority communities, women has been hugely in the public discourse ever since um, in the last sort of five, six years. Uh, the Sarah Everard case specifically, um, we've now had recent sort of data showing that trust in the Metropolitan Police in London specifically um, has fallen drastically. You experienced um, an incident where you had a stop and search um, that, that was well publicized, where it was yourself and uh, I think um, a driver who was a black man, if I'm not mistaken. Um, now, I'm not particularly interested in the incident itself. What I want, wondered is whether you could talk a little bit about this, this tension around the issue of policing, because it goes to the heart of what we've been talking about in the different experiences and the different worlds that people live in this country. One of the best examples is when I went to university, I uh, started to interact with uh, people who didn't come from the kind of backgrounds that I did. And policing was one of the key issues that we used to debate about, because when I grew up, we were afraid of the police, right? We didn't interact. Um, whereas they were told, if anything goes wrong, the police are your friends, go and seek police advice. I got the opposite advice from friends, from parents, often from teachers. Um, which was, you know, to fear the police. So, what age did you get that advice, Ali? Uh, I think it was teenage years. So it was when we started, um, when I started to come home by myself. So when I was not getting picked up from school, you know, mm. the police. Certainly, my mum. There, there was an there was an air of fear. Don't interact um, unless you have to. Um, and then that was. I think reinforced by our own experiences, stop and searches, which caused huge angst amongst us. Uh, you know, where we were just getting, we we never got, we never had anything, but we would constantly get stopped and searched. There was no, um, uh, there was no drive or will from 
local police forces to do any sort of integration work, um, it was almost seen as they were the hammer, we were the nail. Um, and and at the time, you know, I, I was a candidate and I'll be honest with you, when I stood, I was it was one of the issues I was afraid to talk about um, because I was scared of the backlash that, that would come. But I don't think that we can address I don't think it's fair on the police. I don't think it's fair on the communities. I don't think we can address the issue unless we talk about the reality of the fact that there is a huge gap, particularly between minority communities and the police. And so I just wanted your experience, thoughts on that. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have what I call the talk. If you're a person of colour, you have you 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 get given the talk at some stage in your life. Mine was probably, I think as early as about 11, 12, um, where my brothers gave me advice about the police, which is basically don't be alone with them. Get a message to us as soon as you can. Um, when I started driving, it was look in your rear view mirror if the police drives past you. If they U-turn, know that they're following you and find a safe space to stop. And I think the first time they gave me the advice, I was like 14, I wasn't even driving. And I was thinking, wow. And, and I think the brutal murder of George Floyd brought a lot of these discussions and trauma back up to the fore, right? Because there were mm-hmm. people who would normally not have taken any of this in because they'll be out going about their daily lives or all of a sudden stuck in front of the TV, having all this content. And they couldn't explain that death away. Do you know I mean? They couldn't explain why the police were acting in such a brutal way, why somebody else called the police while they were watching the police kill a black man. And so we were having all these conversations with the police. Now, if black people had been listened to about the brutality in the police and about the bad officers in the police, we would have a better police force now. And the fact is they were not. And that is because it's very much links to uh, parliament and old structures where they're built for a certain group of people who act a certain way and they're not to be questioned. And then these are the kind of outcomes that you get. So um, it's interesting now because you've got the the police, especially the Met, to have the the lowest uh, rate of satisfaction at any other time in its history. Women have problems with the police, especially after, as you say, the brutal murder of uh, Sarah Everard. And also the police um, taking pictures of... um, Nicole and Vibber and putting it on a WhatsApp group, women don't feel safe. Black people have never felt safe. Mm-hmm. And you've got gay people who feel that they were not listened to. So you've it's, got different categories of people yeah. now who were like, and that's, you know, and that's rightly why the Met are in special measures. But I must say, uh, and I am one to uh you know, be critical, but also be fair, you know, and I must say that Cressida Dick, I called for her to resign. Yes. Um, Mark Rowley, he's not done anything for me to call him to resign. (laughs) He's actually, I think, 
doing a better job than Cresta did. He's listening. He seems to understand. He says, yes, he understands the police are institutionally racist. So. You mentioned that uh, you called on Cresta to Dick to resign, which I thought was incredibly brave, because even then, even as all the pressure had mounted, there was a fear in politics, because there's a consensus across partisan line in politics that you kind of talked about the police as a dangerous area for you politically. So I thought it was really brave that you did that. And now you've spoken about the new commissioner. If he was here, and I'm sure you have actually spoken to him, but if he was sat here, or if you were in a room, a safe room, that nothing would get out, nothing would get in, what is the advice you would give him to clean this mess up? I've told him this to his face. Every single police officer needs to be revetted. Every single one with that exception. And every single police officer needs a psych test. Do you mean they need to, we need to understand that they are psychologically, mentally sound to do the job of policing. Policing, you know, you're taking away people's liberties. You have power to do that. You have the power to stop somebody and search them. You have the power to tell somebody, I am going to strip search you, take all your clothes off, I'm going to strip search you. Those powers shouldn't be given to people who are unstable. And we have too many unstable officers. And they talk about bad apples. But I actually think that the, I actually think that the Met, and I only know the Met, I don't know other police in other areas, mm-hmm. but I think the Met is a rotten tree that produces a few good apples. Yeah. Rather than rather than the other way around. Yeah. And I mean there's there's all sorts of I mean, we could be here for days citing um, examples, but the hope is that we are now in a moment, because look, there's a, there's a, I can imagine, you might not say it, others might not say it, but there's an element of frustration because black communities have been saying this stuff, exact stuff for decades and no one has listened. And now there might be a gap. There might be a, a slight light where people are listening and it gives us an opportunity to reform for the better. Um, and so the hope is that this moment can be embraced um, and that there can be reform. So I don't have to tell my kids to avoid, to make sure they say all the right things, to be in fear of, of the police. So I can give them the same advice my white counterparts gave their kids. Um, I'd love for that to happen, right? Wouldn't we love for that to happen? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, it has always been so contradictory to me um, because and I didn't say anything for the longest time, but we would be around and, and people would talk about the police in terms that I was unfamiliar with. <laughs> um, it wasn't my experience um, and I know it wasn't uh, my colleague's experience. So we, we, we're, we're running really short of time. One of the last things I want to ask you, if I may, and I hope it is not overstating, but you've gone through some some health issues. So I want to know how you are, how you're feeling and what the future holds. Um, I would love to see Mayor Dawn Butler one day, um, <laughs> but uh, what I wanna know is how you're doing and what the future holds. Thanks, Ellie. Um, I'm doing well, I'm doing well, yes. I had um, breast cancer and it's tough. I mean, you know, once you hear the word cancer, you're just like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a tough, tough road. Um, but I'm coming through it and 
you know, the NHS has been there for me and I'm incredibly grateful to all the doctors and nurses. It also made me realise, you know, just how much they're struggling uh, after the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of doctors and nurses that have got PT PTSD. But yeah, I'm getting there. And, you know, I've, I've started the campaign to find the uh, missing million mammograms. There's a million women out there who haven't had their mammograms. And it's estimated that there's about 8,000 to 12,000 women who currently have breast cancer and don't know it. And the earlier you catch it, the better. So I'm hoping, well, I met somebody just this week who told me that she went for her mammogram because of me. And That's that brilliant. was really emotional so yeah yeah i mean it's it's you know there's all sorts of stuff you can do legislative from a legislative sense to help people but every so often i think public figures are reminded that your experience and your story can save lives also and i think if people hear that that you know what you went through uh and that encourages them to go to their i don't know if it's their gp or whatever and book in their mammograms that'd be excellent so I'm delighted to hear you're better. Uh, can't wait to see um, what you do next. Thank you so much um, for joining us. Uh, you, you've mentioned your book, which people can can go ahead and get. I, I think it's still out there. Um, it's not out yet. Oh, it's, it'll be out soon. Uh, yeah, it'll be out, it'll be out soon, A Purposeful Life. So um, yeah, quite excited about it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some stuff in there about volunteering. <laughs> <laughs> let's, 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 uh, yeah, I, when I wrote mine, I did have to. Once it came out, I just kind of sat there and clenched and waited to, waited to see what the what the backlash or response was. Um, but yeah, it's it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time, and uh, I'm sure all the listeners and everyone is looking forward to seeing what you do next. Pleasure. Good luck, and good luck to you. Hopefully, I'll see you in Parliament one day. We'll see. Thank you so much. Take Thanks. care. Bye. After Mayor of North of Tyne, Jamie Driscoll publicly resigned from the Labour Party over being barred from running in the next mayoral election, legendary political journalist and broadcaster Michael Crick joined me in the studio. This was by far, I think, my favourite interview we've done in 2023. We had a lengthy discussion about the Labour Party, candidate selection and whether Sakir Stammer is purging the party of left-leaning politicians. This uh, was a really groundbreaking interview. Some of some exclusive points from uh, Michael Crick, who's been investigating these selections. Do take a listen and pay attention because it made a lot of noise within the Labour Party. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You will have seen the sort of fallout of uh, Jamie Driscoll's case where the mayor has been blocked uh, from standing uh, as a candidate uh, for re-election. You've been monitoring these cases and these MPs all across the country. Can I quickly first ask you, what what sort of drew you to doing this, to kind of keeping an eye on who tomorrow's MPs may be? Well, I've always been fascinated in this subject. I suppose it all stems from the days, well, way back in the 80s, when I was a young man and I hoped myself one day to become an MP. And I quickly gave that up, that ambition, preferring to be a journalist. Uh, but it always fascinated me, the process whereby people get into Parliament and in most political careers, being chosen as a candidate, uh, particularly for a safe seat, is often the turning point in that career. It's the it's the breakthrough. It's the it's the moment you become a professional, really. And some MPs take years and years and years to get to that stage. A lot of people give up. Don't give up. Persist is my uh, motto. I mean, Je uh, Betty Boothroyd, for instance, the former Speaker of the Commons who died a few weeks ago, she tried for 16 years to get into Parliament. Mm -hmm. She fought five different seats. And sometimes people do it in one. 
Yeah. They go to a selection meeting, get selected that night, and they're away. And they get election, you know, maybe at a by-election three weeks later. Other people take forever. It is the turning point. It gets very little media scrutiny, either by local press, partly because there isn't much local press these days, or nationally. Yeah, and I think, so, what, what folks might not know is because of our political system, especially in Labour safe seats, the primary, the selection process, whatever you want to call it, that deciding who the Labour candidate will be is actually the main election because a lot of times you're pretty much set going into a general election and thus the big fight becomes actually in the internal party processes. Uh, could you give a, listeners a quick sort of glance at what the process looks like? So if, I, if I'm a Labour Party member or even if I'm not uh, and I'm interested in becoming an MP, what does that process look like in, um, at, that you've been monitoring around the country? Well, the process for each party is slightly different, although there are lots of similarities. But let's start with Labour. I mean, Labour advertise online on their website. In fact, they put up a new ad this lunchtime. I haven't looked at it yet. Advertising a few more seats that are open to applications. And people then apply. They've got a week to apply. Any party member can apply. And then um, those applications will be gone through by uh, people in the central party to make sure they'll do what they call due diligence. Make sure Mm -hmm. that you haven't got some scandal in your background or that you didn't say on Twitter Twitter 12 years ago that Keir Starmer was a twerp, or something like that. And, um, and then it, uh, they, they draw up a shortlist. That is then, uh, and the shortlist have to go out and uh, get nominations from the local branches and the local unions, and then it becomes a, sh- uh, sorry, they draw up a long list, then it becomes a shortlist of three names or four names, and eventually there is a meeting after about six weeks. There is a big meeting to which all the members are invited and they all get one vote and the candidate contenders all make speeches and answer questions. Uh, and also you can vote by post in some some instances or you can vote online. And that's how the process happens. And it's a sort of variation on that in the Conservative Party. The only thing in the Conservative Party is you can only apply, apart from where you live, but in every other seat, you can only apply if you're already on the candidates list. And to get on the Conservative candidates list, you've got to go through various processes and tests. And they put you through, you know, pretending to do a media interview, pretending to chair a meeting, all of those things. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so it's like a job and the Liberal Democrats have a variation on this as well. But all of this goes on amidst, well, certainly the Conservatives and the Lib Dems, it's very, very secret. There's mm-hmm. nothing online. It's, you know, the other night, for instance, I suddenly heard the Conservatives had chosen a candidate in Calder Valley in Yorkshire. And uh, I'd, I'd seen nothing about it online but up until the moment where the party announced their candidate. Labour, it's a lot more open. The candidates, a lot of the candidates, you know, talk about it on Twitter. They have their own websites. They make their own videos mm-hmm. Have their, uh, and, uh, you know, and they tell me about it. And I, <laughs> and I mention it. But my, my Twitter feed is about all the parties. Yes. It's just that so far, Labour have chosen 123 candidates sure. for seats they're hoping to win. Yeah. And the Conservatives have chosen just 12. So that's and it, why and it's easier. Of, I yeah. guess it's easier to track Labour because, like you said, it's a little bit, it's a bit little more bit open. More open. Yeah, yeah. But look, I'm and really... also Labour have got, you know, Labour need to pick up lots of new seats. Sure, yeah. Whereas the Conservatives just need to defend what they've got. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> the same was true in 2019. I think we selected loads of people really, really quite early, um, of which I, w- I, I was one of them, which you'll know. And I'm really interested in this because um, much like yourself, you know, it's it's a hugely important process. While someone might be getting picked in Sheffield Central, for example, today, that person could become cabinet member, could become prime minister, hold very important roles. And so while it's not covered broadly in the national media, for example, the work you're doing, I think, is really, really important because these are the selection 
of politicians that we're going to be picking from come exactly. future general elections. And a lot of party members, when they're choosing their candidate to be MP, think about them in terms of being an MP. Um, whereas, actually, parties have got to think about these people in terms of not just being an MP, a but candidate. being a minister, a cabinet minister, yeah. perhaps a prime minister. And one of the uh, worries I have is that the whole process in all of the parties, but particularly Labour, your party, and the Liberal Democrats to a large degree as well, is it's become, everybody's sort of become obsessed that their candidate's got to be local. Right. And uh, you've got to have lived there or been brought up there, yeah. gone to school there, lived there now. Um, and I just think that doesn't really matter. Yeah. You just think back into history, whatever party yeah. you support. We used to we used to have a joke when I stood yeah. that I was born on the floor of the Hillingdon Civic <laughs> Centre yeah. to make it as local as possible. But I mean, if you if you ask yourself who are your political heroes, sure. You know, I mean, a lot of people. Tony Benn is a political hero, mm. for instance. Well, you know, he was MP for Bristol and then he was MP for Chesterfield. I don't think he'd ever been to Bristol before he got chosen as candidate. Yeah. And Chesterfield, I don't suppose he'd been there very much mm -hmm. either. Yeah. And it didn't really make a difference. In the end, he made a very good MP. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think if you're, if you're concentrating just getting people who are local, and about two-thirds of the people chosen are either councillors or they have been not long ago, yeah. then you, you tend to choose people with parochial, what I would call parochial interest. I don't want you to disparaging there education social services transport housing they are incredibly important interests but you also need people who've got are interested in the economy and mm -hmm. foreign affairs and defense yeah. and international aid and those are more yeah. national or international interests and basically my argument would be you all parties need a variety of members sure. of parliament yeah some of whom are going to be brilliant cabinet ministers yeah. others of whom are going to be great backbenchers and some of them will be good chairing committees i think ideally what 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 in the ideal process, you'd have someone who understands the stories of local people. Doesn't mean they have to come from there, but understands the stories of the people that they're representing and the national political picture, whether it's economy, foreign affairs, other things, and how that impacts local people. The problem I have, I wrote a whole book primarily on pretty much the selection process um, in the Labour Party. You know, I was really I switched. Must get hold of a copy. I've got one here. I've got one, I've got one here specifically for you. Let me let me. That's very let kind. Me pass of you. one along so you can have a read on the on the hot train back. Uh, look, the reason I was the reason I was so interested in it is because immediately after losing the 2019 election, I bounced. I went to America, yeah. and I travelled state by state, yeah. and I started to listen to their stories yes. about how they selected candidates. And look, we criticise and disparage the American political system all you all, all we want, but it sounded to me. Way, not only more democratic, but better suited to finding future leaders. And and the reason that I thought that was because of what you highlighted when you spoke about the process. The Labour Party pretty much has says to members, you can choose from our pre-selected group of people we think are appropriate. And with that comes a huge amount of political um, accusations of of it being stitched up, of it being corrupted. And that's where we find ourselves today in the context around this conversation. You know, we've had Jamie Driscoll, who was a mayor who has been um, blocked from standing. But for months and months and months now, we've had accusation after accusation uh, in different constituencies where people have been blocked from standing. People have not been allowed onto the shortlist. Often uh, for very trivial reasons, yes. so far as we can tell. In some cases, we can't tell at all. I mean, I was speaking last night to a woman called Louise Atkinson, who's from Carlisle. She's a Labour sure. councillor. She's also president of the teaching union, the National Education Union, um, for, a, for a, a stint of a two or three years, I think. And she's uh, secretary of the Bain, Labour Bain Group in the North West. She's a, a, yeah. a black woman. She was 
kept off the list in Carlisle. She hasn't a clue why. Yeah. Nobody else has a clue well, look, why. I suspect it's because she's on the left. Yeah, I mean... Uh, and, 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 and that's, that's happened a lot. And that's... that's I mean, in front of me now, just in preparation for the show, I've got names and names and names. Greg Marshall, Brockstow, uh, Maurice McClude from Camberwell and Peckham, Laura Townsend from Milton Keynes North, which was a horrendous... She apparently was blocked, again, allegedly. I, I don't know the inner workings of it, was blocked for liking a tweet that Nicola Sturgeon put out that she'd tested negative uh, for COVID-19. Mayor Evans Strong. in Hastings... Um, Doina Cornell in Stroud. There's a lot, lot more than that. And um, I mean, I, I, and, and there are also people. I mean, I heard uh, this only this week of a couple of people in the Northwest region who were basically advised by uh, party officials, mm -hmm. "Don't bother. We, yeah. we will weed you out. At the, we don't think yes. you're suitable. We'll weed you out." And so, so they don't even bother to apply. So uh, and 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 yeah. there is a lot of interference from the more interference from the centre in Labour's selections this time than ever. The interesting development that is sort of contrary to that is the role of the unions, who always used to be big in this. Sure, yeah. In some some areas, like mining seats, the miners' union just decided who was yeah. going to be the MP. Well, when I was going to stand, I was told, if, you, if you're not going to get one of the big unions on board, Unite, Unison, GMB, forget about it. Yeah, well, now it doesn't really matter. No. And, and uh, I mean, they like to think it matters, but it, it's hardly any selections where I can say, well, the union made a difference there. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 But it's very centralised, and there's a group of people around Starmer Two people called Matt, who worked for him, Matt Pound and Matt Folding, who were previously in sort of Labour right pressure groups. Yeah. Uh, and, and they uh, like Progress and, uh, and Labour First. Uh, and uh, there's a guy on the National Exeter called Luke Akehurst. He has a big role in it. And quite a few of the regional staff. And they do get involved. And they, and they you know, I mean, Luke Akehurst, I did a podcast with him the other day. He quite freely admits we're not just weeding people out because of things they may have gone in their past that are going to embarrass us. But we're weeding people out who sort of have a record of, you know, being quite rebellious as local mm -hmm. councillors or who, you know, have made it clear that they're not going to yeah. go along with party well, look, policy on X, Y and Z. The accusation <laughs> is and the allegations are, uh, and I'll tell you what I think about it later, but I want, I'm more interested in what you have to, right. have to say. The allegation is you either take a knee and kiss the ring or you are not going to become a Labour candidate in 2024. Is that your experience of, you know, I, I, th think, I think, think that you is what know. is happening. And I think, you're, I think it's very, very foolish for the party. And Starmer, frankly, has not been in politics for very long. And if he had been in politics for very long, he might be a bit more mature about this. If you look at any Labour government, it has had a sprinkling of big left wingers. You know, the, yeah. the Attlee government, you had Stafford Cripps and, and, and Nye Bevan. Wilson had Barbara Castle, uh, Richard Crossman and others. Blair had John Prescott, Claire Short, Robin Cook. Sure. I don't think those people would have been selected by Starmer's Labour Party in 2023. Yeah. I think they. I think. I think. I don't think Angela Rayner would have been yeah. selected in 2023. Mate, would Gordon Brown have been selected? Well, possibly not. <laughs> and I think if you have all the people in Parliament, all the people in your cabinet, are being mates and very, you know, similar back, similar middle class professional backgrounds. Hardly any working class people ever chosen anymore, or trade union uh, people with big trade union backgrounds. You have them all similar backgrounds, similar outlooks. They're not going to rebel. They've got, you know, they, they're happy to go along with the party line. You, 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 it's a very dull and dangerous situation. I mean, I think the experience of the Boris Johnson and Liz Truss governments shows how dangerous it can be if you have a government of, of where everybody thinks the same. Yeah. A strong prime minister, a strong leader, strong president of the United States like uh, Abraham Lincoln, 
believes in bringing together, you know, a team of variety of rivals, yeah. team of rivals was how Lincoln's cabinet was called. And the same with Attlee. And, you know, if people who are willing to sort of say, well, actually, your policy on this isn't really working, is it? Yeah. We've got to rethink this and so on. And the danger is that it, I, that you're going to have a, 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 a Starmer government that is very authoritarian Contrary to all the stuff he bleats on about centralisation and devolution, I don't believe a word of it. It will be very a very centralised government because that's the way he runs his party. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I, I mean, hear and that's man, the... I hear he used to be a human rights lawyer. Well, I don't see much evidence of it in the way he runs his party. Yeah, and look, I think it's fair to say it's you know you're not a um, what they would call a hard life activist, hard left activist. No, I mean um, my, my background is broadly I was you know. My whole life, I've sort of been right-wing Labour. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a pluralist. Sure. And I believe you've got to have a variety of opinions and tolerance of people of different mm-hmm. views. And um, and parties need to be broad churches. Yeah. And the way the Labour Party, frankly, has behaved over this, I'll find it difficult to vote Labour and, for and, the next election. And that's the, so that's the question I have. And, you know, I think it's clear for anyone listening, watching, to see that there is a... Um, a system in which you've got to take the knee and kiss the ring to get selected. And there's all sorts of political in terms of ideological problems that I think that causes and ideas for the future that a future Labour government might have. Um, you know, I, a, a pluralistic view of ideas at the table probably leads to best government. But I actually think I have, a, I have a, a, another concern around it, and that's the quality of the individuals going through. So a lot of people are being blocked Again, like I said, some people are being blocked for good reason, but others are being blocked because um, the preferred candidate is really too scared and too insecure to run against them. And so we are getting what I think, I really think this exists, probably the lowest quality politicians in my lifetime or anywhere in Western Europe. Is that not a concern that because of this corruptish system, we're now getting... You know, this is going to be a problem in five and ten years' time where the quality of the politicians we're getting are substandard. Well, I think you've got to be careful there. And, you know, it's all very well to sort of live in a, live in a nostalgic world where yesterday's politicians were all uh, <laughs> a, a wonderful. There were some pretty dreadful politicians in the past, people who were corrupt, people who weren't yeah. very bright, uh, people who frankly shouldn't have been in Parliament. They were given the job to get them out of another mm-hmm. job, you know, save it within a trade union, yeah. for example. Um, and it's important I, to know the stitch-ups have happened in the past. It's not just Starmer that's done it. It's happened in the past. But there, there is, uh, there are, I think there are a lot of mediocrities. There are not many people, you know, of the 123 people chosen for Labour so far, there's not many where you say, wow, you know, that guy's going to be a cabinet minister within years. As one exception, actually, and you'll hate it, hate me saying this. Go on, give us a guy you. called Hamish Faulkner, who's the candidate for Lincoln, mm-hmm. who's the son of Charlie Faulkner, you may remember, was Lord Chancellor and Justice Secretary in the... Uh, the last Labour government, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he comes. From, he comes from. A, he has a very. He's only about thirty-six. Everybody says he's an incredibly nice guy, and he, he's got an amazing CV. Uh, you know, he, he went to Cambridge and Yale uh, in America. He, he he's been working in the Foreign Office. I think he must have left by now. But he was working on. Yeah. Uh, he, he was in charge of kidnap cases for the Foreign Office, uh, which are a lot more frequent than you might think. Oh, wow. By the way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he obviously got strong intelligence connections, military connections. And uh, he will be Defence Secretary or Foreign Secretary, I predict, within you know, yeah. five years of, of a, a Labour government starting. Uh, but there's not many. There's a few with interesting specialisms. You've got a, you know, a guy who was a professional cyclist and mountaineer. Yeah. And you've got uh, 
you know, you've got sort of people who are make uh, obvious ministers of state, the second level down, yeah. but not many I mean, high-powered cabinet ministers. And I, no star names either. There's always a few star names, yeah. like Glenda Jackson or Seb Coe. Sure. None of those No, yet. no, and there, and there are some... St- I'm not saying there's no talent. I'm yeah. just saying there's yeah. very little talent. Because, yeah. I, no, I will, I've had people on this show, yeah. right? And there's some gr- uh, some amazing communicators, uh, and I'm really I'm putting their politics to one side, some amazing yeah. communicators yeah. like... Um, we had Clive Lewis on, who was a yeah. p- pretty good communicator. Oh, incidentally, uh, uh, until a guy called Ben uh, Ben Taylor, I think it was chosen for Croydon South, was the last black man yes, to yeah, be yeah. chosen by Labour. Tr- and this was in 2013, 10 years ago. Yeah. The last black man to be chosen for Labour in a winnable seat. Yeah. But that's, that is an interesting but I, fact, listen, a, a, bit, a bit of a diversion from your train of thought. We, we've had people on this show. Um, I've interviewed with people, been on BBC with people, and sat through um, question time and other programs where when we've gone off air i've sat there with producers and with others going how on earth did this person become a member of parliament because you'd think one of the basics is communicating whether that's media public speaking and others and then i remember flying to america and i was sat in um it was in michigan and we had a we had a rally and you had state senators go up which is basically like councillors, but they're everything is bigger in america and you had state senator after state senator going up and giving these amazing speeches and i remember thinking they're better than some of our shadow cabinet members. So, but the reason is because they have a slightly more open system, they really have to do that battling and honing their skills in the primaries. And yes. that makes for better politicians and, 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 in the and, future. And listeners may not know this, but they're in, I mean, they will have heard of primaries for the presidential candidates. You yeah. know, Trump is up against Ron DeSantis right now and, and Mike Pence and, and others yeah. to try and become the Republican candidate for president before he can actually stand yeah. in the general election. Well, those primaries take place at every level. Yes, you know, yeah. Congress and they're the often very senator. brutal. I know, yeah. and they're often more important. Yeah. The primary election is Absolutely. more important than the general what, election in a state that's overwhelmingly Democrat But what it does, and what I learned, yeah. and what it does, and I mentioned yeah. this in the book, is it hones skills. You become a better yes. communicator. You you get to know your brief better because you know you're going to be and held accountable for amazing it. Amazing public attention. So yeah. if there's anything wrong with some of these guys? Well, it obviously often doesn't often doesn't work, but occasionally it will work. It will and, come out. Yeah. And what I think the problem with doing it also secretively. And in the Conservative Party, it's even often worse, the members yeah. don't even know who the candidates are <laughs> yeah. until they turn up to the selection meeting and they yes. give them the list. Yeah. And if you do that, there's no opportunity for people to say, well, you know this bloke, Crick. I mean, uh, isn't he the guy that defrauded you 20 years ago or whatever? <laughs> right. um, <laughs> yeah. And But I mean, that is important. But I mean, having said all that, uh, you know, my, I, I mean, I'm, I am, I'm doing this in the hope that it will do a little bit to improve the caliber of our politicians, sure. our political class. But and also, I want to encourage people. I don't, you know, I think going into politics is an honourable thing to do. And yeah. you know, I'm, it's slightly shameful I never did it in the end. And it's to your you still got that time. You, did. you just said they <laughs> well, posted a bunch. I, they don't choose many candidates <laughs> over sixty-five. I think I've only come across one in the current round. Oh, really? <laughs> um, so the the I guess one of the the other questions is. You know, you've been able to see all these different candidates from all across across the country. One of my concerns is, if you're blocking people, and I, you know, I think it's happening for much more dogmatic ideological reasons. But if you're blocking people that have anything in their past history that they've said, you know, for me, it's been tweets at sixteen, seventeen years old, and that means that they're not able to ever enter politics. What you're essentially going to get, in my view, is a class of politicians that have been chiseled mostly from Eton and Westminster and other places, you know, these these private schools. And you're just going to get one type of politician. And I'm not saying that they have no place in politics. Quite the contrary. But you're only going to get that type of politicians. Well, Isn't that all concerned? Frankly, they're going to be rather boring politicians. Yeah. And I think that anybody who's studied history knows that 
often the greatest politicians started life as troublemakers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Winston Churchill is a very good example. I mean, Neil Kinnock, you know, he started Maharal Macmillan was a troublemaker. Yeah. And if you're if you're going to exclude troublemakers from the start, yeah. then you are you are excluding um you know, potentially very good leaders who will become much more establishment types yeah. um, later on. Maybe they should be troublemakers later on as well. I mean, yeah. Michael Foote, another another he became leader of the Labour Party after a life of trouble. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, only been expelled from the Parliamentary Party, I think, more than once. Yeah. And, and Nye Bevan and Stafford Cripps, yeah. you know, st- uh, huge p- towering figures in the Attlee government yeah. after the war were both expelled from the Labour Party in 1939 because they wanted a popular front with the communists and other groups uh, against uh, fascism. And that was against the party line. But if you applied the current view of anything that you've said that might, and the question is might embarrass the party, if you applied that to the current parliamentary Labour Party, regardless of politics, how many of them survive? Well, the current parliamentary party, you've got got a fair number of... uh, a, a, a greater number would survive as as as. Uh, sorry, if you mean if you said only, uh, troublemakers. No, I don't mean troublemakers. I'm yeah, excluded. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, or if they've said anything in their past which might embarrass well, the party. Uh, uh, most of them. And frankly, Keir Starmer. Would, yes. I mean, Keir Starmer was against the Iraq War. Well, that would probably be now regarded as a, a as a reason to exclude someone <laughs> as a candidate. Yes. I mean, this is the hypocrisy of the Jamie Driscoll case. Uh, I mean, he has been excluded for doing a cultural event with uh, Ken Loach, the film director. I mean, I don't like Ken Loach's politics, but I love his films. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people would say the same. Uh, and Keir Starmer himself appeared in a very famous Ken Loach yes, film yeah, I've at le- length I've, about I've le- the McLeibel case. I've learned that now, yes. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, so Starmer should be standing down. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, what, I'm, I'm really, it, it really stinks of insecurity to me because actually... I mean, I know the party pretty well. The membership has dramatically changed. A lot of people have left. The Starmer loyalists should have a pretty easy route into winning, no? Because the, the membership of the party has changed. Yeah, but they're terrified, you see. I mean, that Luke Akers, who I was debating with the other day, he, he says, well, look, you know, if we get a... And indeed, actually, both sides agree on this. If we get... If the, if the party wins the next election with a majority, say, of 20... Yeah, here we majority, go. ...then it means that a group of 25... And on what the left in Parliament. Exactly. And right now, the socialist group of MPs, the, the left-wingers, are 35 strong. Yes. They will actually, you know, potentially hold the balance of power within the Commons. Yeah. And that's what worries them. And the only way they're, they're, they're going to remedy that is by yeah. getting rid of all left-wingers yes. and all troublemakers. And, of course, you can never identify them all. Yeah. And, and today's, uh, today's orthodox, you know, yeah. Tony Benn started off by being a very orthodox and establishment yeah. figure and moved to the left. Uh, and that sometimes happens as well. So... Uh, it, it um, it's very draconian. It's very ruthless, and I think in the long term it will co- it will it will come to bite the yeah. Labour right, uh, and, and and you know and the and Labour I'll... left when they come back isn't it? As inevitably they will after a Labour government, they always do. Yeah, uh, will will want to take their revenge. It's uh, uh, <laughs> my, my penultimate question to you is on yeah. that because I had a um, when the when the left seemed immovable in the Labour Party, maybe in 2018, let's say. Yeah, not long ago. I had, um, I had a fellow councillor, I'll give a shout out, Kerry Prince, who's up north now, who said to me, never forget that the party's cyclical, that one day your opponents will be in power, and then the same is true now. Do you think, you know, putting your all of your experience in British politics, are they making a lot of enemies now and, you know, causing problems within the party that may turn its head in two, three years' time? Exactly. Uh, I think they are. It'll be longer than two or three years, but 
you look after every Labour government, uh, you know, the Attlee government, the Wilson government of the 60s and Wilson Callan 70s and, uh, and then the, the Blair Brown government. There was a reaction to the, to the left each time, generally stronger and stronger each time. It's almost like, a, a, you know, a, a vendetta between two mafia gangs. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, they keep killing each other. And every time it gets nastier and bloodier uh, and yeah. the murder is more grisly. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, they, they feel, right, we've really got to get yeah. revenge Problem this is, time and, and, yeah. uh, and wipe the other lot out. Yeah. And, and, it, and all it does is harm the Labour yeah. Party publicly and makes it more unelectable. And the problem is this is often in full view of the general public yes. who aren't as interested or as factional as, as Labour politicians might be. Listen, Michael, I've had a great time. This has been amazing. The, the time has gone so quickly. Uh, I wish I had another hour with you and I'm sure I'm going to get you back. But I have one last question for you. We have one thing in common. We're both, I think, season ticket holders to Man United. We are one. No, you're a season ticket yes, holder. Yes, yeah, yeah, North Stand. We are one Me game too. away from disaster. <laughs> Should I find somewhere to hide for long and long a long time? Do you think that they're going to do I the trouble? Be, I normally watch what I call the European Cup final, but I, I'm not going to be watching on Saturday. I'm sure I've got something else to do. Yes, and I'll be joining you, whatever <laughs> that is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. You know, the, the only thing, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I feel, uh, I'll be, I will feel jealous because the City have emulated our record of the treble. Yes. But I still think it's about time they asked, they answered those questions yeah. about their finances. 115, 115 cases. 115 points. I mean, yeah. I, you know, the City, the Premier, the, the, the City had 115 points yeah. in the Premier League this this season. 150 yeah. points. I mean, 15 look, points about their finances yeah. and why they refuse to cooperate. And with it the just Premier doesn't League. feel the same as 99, does it? I mean, you you remember very well 99. There's no same emotion behind this that no. there was then. And if you think of the teams United beat in 99 yeah. to win the European Cup. I mean, Bayern Munich, they faced twice, Barcelona, Inter yeah. Milan, Juventus, yeah. uh, Juventus in the semi-final. Yeah. Uh, and Juventus were a huge team in those days. Yeah. In the FA Cup, we played, you know, the top yeah. Chelsea, four Arsenal, of the other yeah. teams yeah. In, the, in, in, in the Premier League. So, these these uh, lot beat Sheffield United. It's been a little, an easier run for City. Yeah. Having said that, they have had some amazing yeah. performances, including, I'm afraid to say, against <laughs> us. <laughs> OK, well, listen, thank you so much. That was Michael Crick, veteran politician, one of the great voices uh, in British uh, uh, politics over the last 10, 15 years, uh, and the founder of Tomorrow MPs Twitter page, which you can follow at Tomorrow MPs and keep in touch with all of our future leaders. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the book. Michael Crick there. And that brings us to the end of the show this week. Join me next week. Again, we're going to be looking back at some of my favorite interviews from 2023. Uh, some big voices, leading lights uh, and some controversial ones as well. So I hope you join us uh, next week. Until then, a very, very Merry Christmas to you all. And I hope to see you next week.